Hi, this is Tamsin Granger. And this is Dan Abuha. With Tamsin and Dan, read the paper on Sunday, February 16th, 2020. Exactly. Still recovering from Valentine's Day, aren't you? Yeah, still recovering from Valentine's Day and looking forward to President's Day. So we have a lot to talk about because we were very busy this week. We saw a lot of cultural events. We have one upcoming. We will, in fact, talk about Parasite uh, down the line a little bit. You might look forward to that. Uh, and there's a special section coming up on presidents as authors, uh, which we're doing for the purpose of President's Day. So you'll want to stay tuned here. But maybe we should start right away, dig right into our first cultural event. And that would be, Tamsin? We went to hear Gregory Porter at McCarter's Theater. In uh, Princeton, New Jersey. Yes, last weekend. Gregory Porter. A jazz singer. Great jazz singer. With a fantastic voice. Fantastic, low voice. Right. Very rich. And, uh, you know, we've been familiar with him for a while. And we have friends who had signed up to go. And that sort of spurred us, I think, to sign up to go and buy the tickets to McCarter. Uh, And it's funny. The timing is, we've done this once before, uh, you might call this a Valentine's Day concert, or you might not, but it was uh, February 11th or so. It was early in the week, and uh, and we had done this before with uh, Diana, Diane Reeves, who gave a wonderful concert a few years ago. And that might have been explicitly billed as a Valentine's Day concert I don't remember. at McCarter. Uh, and the interesting thing is that was um, in the Diane Reeves concert, which was a great concert, uh, she didn't sing anything that was really Valentine's-oriented or romantic even though she does some very traditional stuff, including a lot of Ella Fitzgerald stuff, which easily would have lent itself to that. And it was kind of funny, we thought, but it was a good concert. No, and it was a great concert. Was, and we had a great time. And we did. But it was not full of love songs. Right. Standards. Which, uh, that, just uh, surprised us. Yeah. Just surprised well, us. Yeah. So Gregory Porter, at the beginning of this concert, and he has clearly has a very strong following. There are a lot of people very eager to see him. It was a full house. Uh, as we learned, as we listened to the concert, some people really knew his material. They were singing along to some stuff. And uh, he, as he started just talking at the beginning, uh, just warming the crowd up, he, he said, well, I know there's going to be requests. And he heard something. He said, oh, I can hear it now. The Valentine's Day requests. I hear it. I hear it. And he didn't sing anything remotely romantic during the entire time. He didn't sing any standards. Um, he didn't sing anything recognizable as someone who wasn't an Orton fan uh, and frankly, the songs he sang uh, weren't so great. Uh, although for, for his ardent fans, uh, some of them clearly enjoyed them. Uh, but that kind of, um, in my mind, sort of took away from the concert. And I got less out of it than I thought I was going to. But what was your reaction? Well, it, it was just weird. I mean, he really has an extraordinary voice. Right. And it's a low voice. And it's a voice you might uh, might remind you of. Barry White, yeah. in some ways. It's a, I would call it a cross between Barry White and, and Nat King Cole. Which is a, f- a funny cross. But anyway. Um, a smooth Barry White. He's very smooth. Yes. He's super smooth. Right. And there was some anticipation for that kind of music. From and and I should say his last album was uh, Gregory Porter sings Nat King Cole. Um, so it was kind of a shock. Yeah, well, it was just... It, it the was, music that he did sing. Yeah, it, it was not to say it was awful, but it was uh, drawn from a different part of his repertoire, let's say. Uh, it was Some of it was uh, gospel-oriented, 
or at least he was singing about his experiences as a young boy in church. Some of it was politically oriented. His mother was a preacher. Right. And, and uh, But none of it was what you would call memorable. None of it was, and the songs really weren't that good. I mean, they, I guess they had a point. And, uh, uh, and, and maybe if I was more familiar with the material, I would have gotten more out of them. But it seemed to be interesting. Uh, and it's very hard to tell what other people are getting out of the concert. But projecting perhaps a little bit, but I know you got the feeling that some people might have been, a lot of people might have been disappointed. Uh, well, but I don't know. I but mean, I maybe know. I was reading something into it. Yeah. But the music was fairly political. Yeah. And Which was uh, just fine in of itself if it's tuneful and otherwise no, memorable and great, well, but it wasn't. I understand that he is going to sing, you know, what he wants to sing. Absolutely entitled to do that. Okay. And I understand that it is perhaps more fulfilling yeah. to sing things that are meaningful to you personally. Right. Um, than to, to sing what might be, you know, standards that you've sung a million times to try to make a buck. Right. And you're tired of and you feel you no longer have to be chained to that. Right. Um, nonetheless, for whatever reason, that's the kind of thing I was sort of yeah, expecting yeah. Well, and yes. hoping for. And I think that would resonate with me at the moment would have made the concert a, right. a, a better concert for you and, and, and I don't the think the thing that, is yeah. here's the problem yeah the tickets were not inexpensive right for Princeton right they were like 65 to 90 bucks yeah and um, I feel McCarter should be more clear about the playlist yeah before you pay or the style I mean especially since since he has such a, a varied repertoire you know, there's such a range. I mean, it's not like it's opera versus pop, but but he has very different stuff. And, uh, you know, if we had been a little more clued in, uh, we probably wouldn't have gone. Yeah, we are clueless. Yeah, that, we're clueless. But he is a wonderful singer. He is a great and, singer. And uh, But if he gives another concert like this, I'm, I'm not going. But honestly. it didn't really ring the yeah. Valentine's Day chimes. No, no. But it, it, just, it, it was funny, you know, again, totally entitled to sing what he wants. Uh, but it is funny that he acknowledged with a huge smile at the beginning of the Valentine's Day thing and purposely nothing like that, which, which was kind of odd. I have to say the band was kind of super. Did you think so? Oh, yeah. And I thought... Uh, I think you always think the band is super, honestly. No. We, no? We, we've been to some very we've been to some very good ones lately. Yeah. All right? Okay. And uh, we've been to... You love Harry Connick. The singers that we've been hearing yeah. happen also to be... I think musicians. great musicians. That's right. Okay, and Gregory well, he, Porter, Diane Reeves, no exceptions. Well, their instrument not, is their voice. True, but uh, they have great um, yes, but there's but Harry, instincts in yeah. those areas and great skill in those areas, and I think they gather people around them yeah. who are great performers. I really thought the sax guy was great. Yeah, maybe. Um, but 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 there's musicians and musicians. I mean, John Petrarelli is a guitarist. He's a different kind of musician. He's just more that even than a singer. Harry Connick. Is a great musician aside from being a singer, right? And I think that even adds yeah. more. So, so it's not like we've been anyway. He, he's great. Uh, concert wasn't so great. At least we didn't think so. Um, not for us. The uh, then we went out again. I mean, we were uncontrollable. We went to see a movie uh, on later in the week, uh, and we saw the gentleman. I, you know, it's funny with all this Academy Award stuff. You might think you'd be in. Uh, immediately drawn to see one of the Academy Award winners, which ultimately we did. But sometimes you got to make a choice and you say, well, gee, uh, this one we might want to see and it's not going to stay very long. It might not because be playing it hasn't next been week. So, fabulously right. reviewed. so you yeah. see the so called lesser movie, 
And that's what the gentleman uh, sort of seemed to be. It was recommended to us. Recommended by, by Armand. By Armand, whose taste we take quite seriously. Uh, and so we plunked down our 10 bucks a piece. And we went to see The Gentleman, which is a movie uh, directed by Guy Ritchie. Uh, and it's, it's, Guy Ritchie has done uh, Lock, Stock, and Two Smoking Barrels. He does, he, he's, he's done several movies that are real action movies, a little over the top in terms of the shooting, perhaps. Uh, and maybe uh, a lot of rough, salty language, but kind of oddly funny in their own way and kind of rough and tumble, uh, sort of like James Bond plus about five degrees, if you will. And uh, some people go for that. I know Armand does. And I guess in the right mode, I can. And actually, I went for this. So it, it stars uh, Matthew McConaughey. Uh, as a cavalcade of stars. As, well, it does a cavalcade of stars, but let me limit it because we only have so much time. Matthew McConaughey, Colin Farrell, and most memorable... And the thing that made the movie for me, Hugh Grant. Uh, and Hugh Grant plays, you know, one of these... A pretty sleazy guy. Very sleazy character. Sleazy, and he, sketchy guy. And he is sort he of... He must have loved playing that. He, he doesn't sound anything, look anything, or mostly doesn't sound anything like the Hugh Grant that you know. And he serves in an odd way as a narrator over the movie because uh, the movie unfolds with him visiting uh, one of the principals and laying out what he thinks is going on, if you will. And he is fantastic, would you yes. say? And who was the other guy? Wh- which other guy? Charlie Hunnam was the guy he was Charlie talking to. Charlie Hunnam? Yeah. I mean, he, he was, was unexpected. He was all right. He was all right. He was very good. Okay, fine. And he had the guy from uh, Crazy Rich Asians? Uh, yes, Golding. Henry Golding. He was okay. I mean, look, it was a good cast all the way through, yeah. right? So we don't have to go through the story. It's uh, Michelle Dockery was there. Michelle Dockery, as one review says, plays a glamazon. I think that's fair. She doesn't say very much, but she dresses well. And she shoots well. Yeah. And um, anyway, uh, so it's you know it's a a drug war kind of thing. Right. So Uh, so it's funny. Don't tell the story. I'm not going to tell the story. I'm going to say it's oddly the way it was received and the way we received it. So the way it was received, uh, the Times, Manola Dorgas, who I just whose movies review I read just for my amusement, not, not because she's anything really useful for me to hear on the movies, is uh, said she, she could barely watch the movie. It sounds like she sat in the theater with her eyes closed. Here it is, another, uh, you know, uh, exploitation movie, violence, uh, sexploitation. Oh, it's hard to say that. I think she meant there are no women in the movie. Uh, I guess you're allowed to make a movie about gangsters, which doesn't have women, I would think, but that bothered her. And... Um, why are people still making movies like that? Was her review. And New York Magazine was harsh also because they thought that uh, it was so old-fashioned to make the uh, the bad guys, the gangsters, uh, Asians. Uh, and that was sort of racist. Well, here, here's what I would say to New York Magazine. They were all bad guys. They were all gangsters. They were all, everyone <laughs> they were in the all movie is a gangsters. Uh, so, to, so I don't One know. One guy what, wins, but he's not exactly a good guy. Know, and, yeah, and they make no. the point of saying he's not a good guy. So, uh, you know, that, that seems such a dumb thing to say. Uh, and look, the short answer is, uh, for no particular reason, the movie was a lot of fun. And maybe for the particular reason is Hugh Grant. I, I mean, I really, I didn't think I'd enjoy it that much, Armand notwithstanding. Uh, and I enjoyed it. Yes. I mean, it's a certain kind of movie. You might compare it to Knives Out, let's say. It's going to be a fun kind of oddball movie. But I thought it was better than Knives Out. Yes, but it was quite violent. Yes. And the language is up there. Yes. And the language doesn't bother me. But I, I can't say that for in that part, everybody would enjoy it. In part that. because it's a foreign language. It's Cockney English. 
And it, it, it kind of registers. You're, you're struggling. Did he really say that? And then yes. you're moving too fast. And then, yes, there then, is a little then, delay. There. Right, right. So you don't take it seriously because there's just babbling, you know. Right. Uh, anyway, it's, it's a fun Speaking movie. Speaking of foreign language films. Yes. So then we get to the big one. So we, of course, moved, as many people were probably are, to see Parasite because Parasite won Best Picture. Yes. All right. Who goes first? So we went. Well, <laughs> it is funny that uh, I have to say we went to the movies on, um, what was it, Friday night? Yes, and the movie, the movie itself, started thirty minutes after we sat down. In because the of all these stupid coming because attractions of and ads and, and ads. Yeah. the parasite movie. When we walked in ten minutes before it was supposed to start, and they started the early, were out and they had already started. The <laughs> oh, movie. that's the theater. That's the theater. You know, these theaters are killing themselves. Right, uh, they are. They know, are not helping themselves. It's it, it just kind all of right. a mess. So, so Parasite, so, just, just to set it, I mean, I think everyone's familiar with Parasite. But Parasite won Best Picture. It's a Korean movie. Uh, it takes place in Korea. It takes place in Korea, and it's it's about uh, it's, it's famously everyone talks about it, it's about uh, inequality, um, and uh, it's directed uh, by Bong Joon Ho. Uh, he won Best Director, uh, won Best Foreign Language Picture, and again won Best Picture. Um, and uh, what do you think? Um, I thought it was not the best movie I've seen. Yeah. But I did enjoy it mm-hmm. a fair amount. Mm-hmm. But I think the biggest problem is it's a Korean movie. Yeah. How can I possibly enjoy, get into, understand the nuances of that movie when I don't know the culture well, and I don't know the language? I can't judge. You know, there, there, well, there's so look, many ways. But all you can answer, the only question you can answer is... You know, what did you think of the movie, given that's your frame of reference? I mean, you... Yeah, but I think that's totally, you know, a lame frame of reference. Well, no, that's not You lame. know, because I, you know... But it's not... i tell you why it's not there lame. There are jokes that are in there I'm not going to get. Well, um, look... There, you can't get nuances about the but language the people, from subtitles. Look, it's a highly praised film. Obviously, one best picture. And those are English-speaking people also. And they're saying... And, and, and you see the quotes in the theater as you walk in. You know, the, the funniest movie of the year, comic, whatever... Uh, and um, and those people don't speak Korean, so I understand. But maybe what they think is funny was not part of the joke, right? But that's well, but the, right? it's not because of the a Korean problem, problem for me. Look, I understand. I just really question why the Academy chose to make well, it best picture. It's worth seeing, yeah. And I gotta say, zillions of people in America would not bother to see it, yeah. unless it was best picture, yeah. If it was best foreign film, they probably would have said, "Oh, it's a foreign film. Why right. go?" Um, so I think that's interesting and good that uh, you know the Academy created all this interest in this movie. Uh, well, we'll, but, we'll see. We'll uh, see. I mean, look, I agree with you. I, I think it was a fairly political choice. I think it was a totally political choice. Yeah. I mean, look, if I had seen this picture without all the uh, excitement about Academy Awards and just saw it months ago, I would have said, well, it's a foreign picture. It's kind of interesting. It's definitely original. Um, didn't enjoy it that much, but it was okay on balance. I'm glad I saw it. That's what I would say. Okay, like the movie The Farewell. It was a window into another culture. Right. So, so that's good because the farewell was a better movie. Uh, yeah, but it was more accessible to. Us, no, 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 for, forget the Korean excuse. I mean, uh, no, the, the movie. I, I don't think. Just put that aside for a moment. I, we, so we'll reserve on that. But the point is, in terms of what I got out of the movie, let me list. Farewell was a better movie. Um, uh, Jojo uh, Rabbit 
was a better movie. Yeah, yeah. Uh, what, what do you, wait a second, wait a second. I'm not done. Uh, what's the uh, movie? Uh, Little Women. Better movie. Uh, you know, I had my issues uh, with Marriage Story and with uh, Tarantino's movie. But there were scenes in there that were really powerful scenes you don't have in this movie. I mean, all these movies were better movies. Right. So I don't know what's moving. <laughs> Look, comic. I, I would be super interested to know what some Korean. You know, but again, I'm, I'm less interested. I, I, I can only take it this I, way. I'm, I'm quite curious. Okay. I mean, a big part of it was the juxtaposition between the very poor and the very right. rich. So let me let and me see how they live right. in Korea and how they all survive. But let me go back to something whatever. that you said. That you said it was a political choice. Yeah. I, I think it's a totally political choice, and I'll tell you right. why. It, it's uh. In terms of the movie itself, the, the comic stuff, I, I didn't think it was, I didn't see any comic stuff, it was, but I don't like slapstick, so it's full of slapstick. But, um, you know, I think they hit the hot button issue this year, which is inequality, and maybe it'll be the hot button issue, hot button issue for several years, I'm not saying it's an insignificant issue, but they hit that issue, and then the question becomes, fine, so you got a movie about that issue, and is this movie such that it gives you an insight in this issue, that it's, it's a transcendent experience, that you experience that issue in a different way, that you come away seeing it with, you know, a different perspective, uh, moves you in a particular way about that issue. And the answer to those questions to me is no. I mean, I understand it's about that issue, but does it take me anywhere in that issue? No. And so that's why I'm, I'm very tepid in terms of our session to the movie. Um, I don't get it. So, uh, yeah, look, I can't argue with you about if you speak Korean, you'd experience it differently. I suppose you, you do. But, but the, yeah. the award's given by people who don't speak Korean. And uh, yeah. so they're, they're saying just, putting that I aside. I would be very interested because I think, uh, again, there's personality types that are cultural, yeah. language, jokes, um, idioms look, that don't come across uh, let me put on it the subtitles. So, I, you know. We um, we need some help here. Let me just say we this. We need to do more research. Clearly, I need, I need to speak some other language to enjoy that movie a great deal. And if you give me $10 and you ask me which movie would I want to see a second time, it would be uh, uh, The Gentleman. Um, so, I would go back to Jojo Rabbit. Well, I would too, but I wasn't putting that on, on the choice. Uh, just this weekend? Yeah, yeah, just this weekend. Okay, and then uh, next week we have to go into Nueva York. Yeah, we don't have see... to. We want to go to see Encores. We always right. love Encores. And they have Mac and Mabel this year. And, and the reason the, the Mac, Mac and Mabel, Mabel resonates is it was written by Jerry Herman, who recently passed away. Jerry Herman, of course, who wrote Hello, Dolly, on Casa Fall. Uh, so you know the music's going to be extremely good. Uh, and we saw a scene from it. They did a scene from it mm-hmm. in sort of a review they did a year ago. And uh, it was really, really excellent. Um, uh, so this is at the city center. Right. It's about Max Sennett, who was a uh, director of movies in the uh, very early 1900s. Douglas Sills is in it. You've seen him in uh, Scarlet Pimpernel, I think. He's yes. a fantastic voice. Yes. He's yeah. a lot of fun. Uh, he is a lot of fun. And um, Wednesday night through Sunday. Right. So you can get tickets to this. I'm sure they're available. They're they un- start at $35. Yeah. It's uh, cheaper than so we bring it up. Reporter. Look into uh, it. But, yeah. And uh, I do know some of the music from it. Really? Okay. Because they play, you know, the original oh, production. I won't send you roses with Robert Preston. Robert Preston and Bernadette Peters. Exactly. Right. And uh, so. Um, yeah, the music's good. 
Time heals everything. Here's you know something. Time heals everything. Here's something. Uh, you might remember. You know uh, where the music actually became popular a few years ago? Torval and Dean. Oh yes. Skated to yeah, Mac read, and Maple. I read about if this. If anybody yes. remember, well, I remember watching. It was it. the overture. Yeah, they were. They were. They were uh, the great skating pair of some years ago at the Olympics. Uh, ice dancers, much loved English, and they skated to Mac and Maple. Right. Okay. But here's the thing. Yeah. The uh, Mac and Mabel has been um, produced in England many, many times. Oh, is that right? Like every few well, years. Well, that's why Torval and David so did it, I guess. We never see it. I don't know why <laughs> it uh, hasn't made it to the U.S. Very I don't much. know. I don't know. All right. So uh, that's our recommendation hey, for this weekend. I've got a great article. Go ahead. Um, and, of course, I, I read it online in the New York Times before I read it in the paper. Mm-hmm. And the great thing is, online, it has a better title. The What's title it? for it was, The Gorilla Car Washers of NYC. And uh, so it turns out, and in the hard copy in the um, paper, it was The Car Washers of Inwood, which uh, isn't quite as sexy. For decades, New Yorkers have been cleaning vehicles along the sidewalks. A city plan may end it. And it turns out... Uh, Inwood area, especially, uh, I think, along, is it Broadway? And 200, like 207th Street. Yeah, north of Manhattan. Um, you, there are these vans. Yeah, it, Inwood goes up, to, side, goes up to 225th. Okay. Yeah. Thank you for that. Yeah. Um, <laughs> I'm not going there, Dan, <laughs> to get my car washed. You might, you might. Right? There are vans along the side of the street. Yeah. Okay. And you pull over yeah. and these guys jump out and wash your car all right only if you want it it's not like the window washers from years ago who uh would just um you know kind of hijack you on the way to the tunnel um anyway they have these vans and uh they have guys uh who um uh, you know one guy will jump out and uh, he will soak down the car another guy hoses it off with a power wash. Then there's somebody who is hosing the mats and the vacuuming in. They they have tanks of water in these vans. That's the amazing thing. They have power power washers in the vans. Yeah. That's uh, unbelievable. So the vans are equipped. Right. And they have all these, you know, they have the usual amount of uh, rags and so forth. And they charge, I don't know, from 10 to 20 bucks. Yeah, mostly 20. And uh, these guys are industrious. See, I think they say with tips. Yeah. And a good... uh, Week in the summer, they can take home a thousand dollars. Right. All right. But of course, in the middle of winter, uh, not so much. Now, all kinds of people do it. It's largely, uh, um, in many cases, immigrants. And uh, it, there was one story about a woman who has, uh, after her divorce, needed a way to make money. She has put her kids through school, she says. Right. She has one kid in college, one kid working as a dental hygienist. All right. Um, and, uh, you know, by doing this. Now, here are the here are the problems. Number one, it may come to an end because yeah. this area uh, that's kind of derelict and therefore open to you know extra parking spaces is might be rezoned. And there's a proposal to build a 27-story apartment building, right. and that would kind of be the end of that. Right. Okay, but here are the other problems. It's illegal. But they're doing it. Right, but they're not paying taxes. They're yeah. not having, you right. know. Well, that's uh, why it works. Permits. Uh, they're not. Um, think about the soapy water. They're not disposing of that water in a, a an 
ecological. Really? Are there rules about disposing of soapy water? What? Sure. All right. Okay. If you're going to use it on a commercial level, yeah. Um, you know, that's definitely going to pollute uh, the water in the, you know, the whole water system. Okay. You know, it goes down the drains like everything else. Um, so there are many negative aspects and uh, some interesting comments online yeah. as well. People saying, wait a minute, wait just a daggone minute. You can't sell a couple of sodas yeah. in the subway, but people will, you know, turn the other way while you have this whole car washing business. Um, so it, Again, it's controversial. Well, but, you know, you love the idea that these, uh, these, guys these people are find industrious, yeah. they're entrepreneurial. Right. Um, so That's what I took from it. And the, the powers that be say, well, if this happens, we put them out of business, we'll try to uh, make accessible, you know, job retraining right. yeah, good for luck them. With that. Yeah. You know, uh, is that really going to No, happen? I'm on their yeah. side. I mean, yeah. I, I think it's a great, uh, yeah. it very, shows a lot of ingenuity. interesting. A lot of ingenuity, a lot of initiative. Right. And, and, you know, if you take home 30000 that way and you're not paying taxes, it's like making 50000 otherwise, and uh, it's cool. Uh, and frankly, if they rezone it, it's going to take them five years and they'll find another place to do it. So uh, I think uh, they're in business for a long time. I think it's all cool. Uh, so you're not worried about the environmental impact? Well, I don't know. I'm not sure exactly how that works. But uh, here's something that I learned, uh, or maybe I didn't. I don't know. So there was something that went viral about a dispute in an airplane about a woman who puts her seat back, as many people do, try to recline during the flight. And a guy behind her, and this is a, perhaps more unusual, pushes back. And every time she puts her seat back, he's punching back. So to prevent her from putting her seat back because it's interfering with his space. And somehow, as I said, this became viral. Well, it turns out... In, because we all can relate. We all can relate. It ha- happened to me. Right. And I'm pissed off. I've never said anything. Well, but I am pretty pissed off. If someone punches back? Or no. If well, they don't puts- punch. Actually... To be honest, lean in. the um, space is so small. Yeah, a guy like you sitting behind me, if his knees are in a certain location, yeah. I cannot recline. Right, right. So here is, so so this woman is interviewed in an article in the New York Times, and she says she was stunned that she did not get the support of the stewardesses during this experience. He's punching back. Uh, they come back. They see the brouhaha, and they're completely on the side of the person sitting behind her, which she doesn't understand. She says, "I have the right to put the seat back." Uh, so that's the way she describes the situation, and she's ticked off at the airlines. Well, what they did in the Times is they consulted someone uh, who was a, a fellow named Henry uh, Hardevelt, who's a travel industry analyst. And here's his analysis, okay? His analysis is the person in the seat has the right to recline, but, and this is the thing that's got me thinking, airplane etiquette, is you only recline when necessary. And if you must recline, just put the seat back a little bit to get the comfort you need without encroaching too much on the person behind you. And I have to confess, I wasn't aware of that airline etiquette. Were you? No. But what's the difference between rules and etiquette? Uh, Well, I don't think uh, Mr. Hortevelt is parsing that for us. He's saying you have the right to do it, but... Uh, it's bad manners to do it unless you really have to. Okay. That's the best way I can express it. So what, I would, didn't realize that at all. And to me, if you have the right, you have the right. But he's saying, no, no, no. If you're pushing back and you have a big guy behind you, unless you really need it, you shouldn't push back. And you, of you course should, you really need it. Uh, Give the, me a break. That's what he's saying. So he's Who saying... Who has enough room in, he's in saying the airplane that, seat? He's taking the view that apparently the airlines might have, which is that the guy behind her has 
something to say about pushing back on her, pushing back in her seat. Or not allowing her yeah. to recline. Well, this was news to me. Well, I yeah, would have thought I, that... I just, well, that, doesn't still, that does not solve the problem for me. No, that, of course it doesn't solve the problem. The problem is because, there's not enough room uh, in the airline. Because right? everybody needs okay. to recline. All right. It's, well, anyway. Un, those seats are amazingly Well, the etiquette was news to me. Um, so, the... the uh, Basketball folks, the NBA is having their all-star game today. And there was an interesting article uh, about um, about a particular player, a fellow named um, uh, Lukas Doncic, uh, or Doncic uh, who's Slovenian. Um, and let me get to him in a second. I mean, you, I know, are familiar with Giannis uh, Adibkumbo, and I'm pronouncing that last name in the Nigerian way, perhaps not the way you've heard it before, but Giannis had made clear, now this is Nigerian pronunciation, not the Greek pronunciation, but let's call him Giannis, sometimes called the Greek freak, but I think that's considered uncool these days. And he's now generally... Your Nigerian Greek is just amazing. It is amazing. I'm so impressed. So he's considered, you know, conventionally the best player in the NBA right now. Milwaukee Bucks' team have the best record, but... The is NBA moves... rising star? Quickly, that's right. And the Slovenian Luka Doncic... Uh, has, I think you got to work on your Slovenian. I, there's no question I have to. I know who you can ask. Okay. Uh, is coming on like a house of fire. He's only a second-year player. He's very young. He's 6'7", 230 pounds, and he's fantastic. He had his first year last year. He was great his first year, but even then, people were saying, you know, he's kind of overweight. He's not in shape. He can't keep up. You know, he'll be great in the future. But he has become a superstar real fast. And already people are talking about him overtaking Giannis. I'm only mentioning because I want everyone here to be up on the latest phenomenon in the NBA. And they had a great story in which last year, uh, Luca's playing against the Lakers. Again, he plays for Dallas. And he's about, he's about to get the ball. He's on the court. And he hears someone behind him cursing in Slovenian, which doesn't make any sense at all. And he turns around, and it's Kobe Bryant retired cursing in Slovenian. And at, later, after the game, he goes up to Kobe Bryant, who we didn't even know. And he says, how can you be cursing me in Slovenian? And of course, everyone knows Kobe speaks Italian and, and a little bit of some other languages. And it turns out the reason is because Kobe had as a teammate uh, another player named Sasha Vujacic. And he's Slovenian. There are three Slovenian, two Slovenians now in the league. And he learned, because he was constantly pushing Sasha, and Sasha was pushing back all these Slovenian curses. So he was totally into it. And there's a wonderful picture of him explaining this to Luca after the game, and they're shaking hands. And, of course, now it's a great and moment. And it's a great photo. Uh, perhaps not. But, you know, without going in, I mean, look, he has now, Kristaps Porzingis, who you remember being on the Knicks, was banished to Dallas uh, in another stupid trade that the Knicks made. And he was supposed to be the next superstar. Well, no one's considering Porzingis the next top player anymore, even though he's only 24. But here's his quote about Luca. He's just one of those, like, super talents. He's born with it. The way he plays with his confidence, he just has it. Luca Doncic, Tamsin. Keep your eye out. All right. Keep going. No, I think you have something. I thought you were going to talk about school lunches. Well, I think, yeah, I could talk about school lunches. I know you have something about any... school lunches. Well, you're here, on a roll here. I have only one thing to say about the school lunches. As long as we're cursing. There's been, there was an op-ed piece in the Times after a letter to the editor saying that uh, the school lunch program needs the support of parents throughout whatever city. and It could be throughout the country, really. Maybe the first article was New York. 
And uh, the reason is they're saying, look, you've got a lot of kids bringing their lunches, but you know, if everyone bought the school lunch, uh, the program would be better supported. And that's what we want to do because it would be better for everybody. The school lunch program is better supported. And you should feel comfortable supporting it because there's nothing like the government making school lunches for your kids. You'd be surprised how much they've improved the lunch. I would be surprised. I would be shocked. And uh, so the article... Yeah, there, I mean, uh, well, here's, less than a year ago, yeah. there were all kinds of news stories about you know, really gross things happening in schools, right. uh, you know, out-of-date food and moldy food and so on. Well, I, look, I'm entirely with you. The idea of someone saying, you know something, I could make lunch for my kid, but, uh, you know, the government probably knows better than I do as to what the kid would eat. It's so bizarre that it, it, it's so great. And they have a picture well, of four model school lunches. And I will tell you right now, each of them have either fat-free milk or low-fat milk. And I'm saying to myself, well, they're only, I don't know, five years behind the times, just on the basis of the only thing I can identify in the picture, because everyone knows now the kids should be drinking whole milk. So uh, not a real confidence inspiring photo. It, it never, with food, it never works right. to say this is what you should be eating. Right. And, uh, you know, and, and it, it's pa- more patriotic no, to uh, so dumb. buy the lunch. You cannot get kids to eat those lunches. No. And uh, think how remember? much better they would be yeah. if you you know, went ahead and bought them. I mean, it's the same people making the, the lunches. Way. And well, I, I actually have known some people who are involved in yeah. the cafeterias, yeah. trying to turn around these cafeterias. Right. And, uh, you know, there are the classic lunchroom ladies who are not going to be turned around. <laughs> you know, right. they've been warming up this frozen food forever. Uh, and serving the canned uh, fruit cocktail right. uh, that nobody's eating. Uh, so um, that's not the way to do it. And so. you know, Sorry to hear that. But here's a funny thing, and here's an interesting thing, and that is um, an article called Snack to the Future in the Wall Street Journal by Jane Black. Starts out saying, it's hard to imagine feeling thrilled at the sight of a vending machine. Um, but this is how Dina Adelam, an endocrinologist and weight loss specialist at uh, New York's Mount Sinai, Mount Sinai Hospital felt when she laid eyes on a farmer's fridge. And uh, goes on to say, there is this new phenomenon going on, reasonably good food in vending machines yeah, where you need them. And this includes hospitals, um, government offices, uh, airports, and places like that. And for instance, this woman, you know, uh, was working, uh, you know, needing to eat at hours where the hospital cafeteria is closed and needed other options. And shockingly enough, some of these are good. There's uh, the one she's talking about is called Farmer's Fridge. Now, Farmer's Fridge is the big leader at the moment. It has 400 machines in office buildings, hospitals, and food courts in six states in the U.S., all right? And um, they serve all kinds of... They serve salads. Uh, the um, This woman's favorite happened to be a pineapple coconut chia seed pudding, which is... Uh, her favorite. Uh, they serve smoked turkey cheddar sandwiches, um, dark chocolate trail mix, hard-boiled eggs, chipotle turkey sandwiches, and salads in a jar. You know, trying because 
obviously the jar is more recyclable than right. a lot of other containers might be. They buy, they have a, a, an enormous commissary that ships out all this food. It's consumed, uh, you know, it gets to the places where it's going in less than 36 hours, which is a lot less than some of the fresh options you see in various, you know, salad bars and packaged salads in uh, grocery stores, etc. And they're able to monitor through the internet all these different vending machines, the temperature is taken every five minutes, mm-hmm. um, stuff is not sold once it's uh, out of date, uh, etc. And they're doing pretty well. Then there are some other options. Um, in New York, they have something called Fresh Bowl, uh, which uh, only has like seven uh, spots. But, um, and I guess uh, mostly in uh, Manhattan. There's also something called Chow Botics, where which has a robot called Sally that makes a salad for you. Oh God! So it has all these different you know options. It has twenty two different possibilities. Hmm. You know, just like um, what's your salad place you go to in New York? Chopped. Chopped. Okay, and so you push a yeah, button yeah, no, no, I to indicate uh, right. the different things you wanted added to yeah, it, cool. and so far. So um, you know, supposedly that's pretty good. But they and they do. The article does give examples of people trying this, and the one guy tries it in O'Hare Airport because he sees the flight attendants lining up. Oh wow! Well, that's yeah. something. He says, and they would know. Right, they um, would know. So I feel like we saw them somewhere, and I just totally disregarded it and, and thought it was silly. But uh, this is kind of a coming trend. Um, also, you know, more coffee machines. There's a company called Truebird that actually uses beans from Stumptown, and uh, the coffee's much cheaper, three twenty-five. Uh, and uh, they're launching more and more uh, locations in New York City, so maybe you'll get to try one. So this this is just hilarious to me because I gotta say, at least twenty years ago, my father told me this was the coming thing. Oh God! Well, that's <laughs> that's know? the kiss of death. No, I don't know. The man, you know, had some insights. Oh, that don't, let's not go down that road. So you were going to talk oh, about... Oh, I was also going to mention, uh, of course, your favorite soap yes. is Dr. Bronner's uh, per Pure Castile Liquid Soap. Mm. I first bought it because it comes in an unscented version, uh, their baby version. And I was looking for, you know, a fairly pure soap, unscented to take along on a family vacation uh, just because, A, I don't want to harm the uh, environment of Block Island too much, and B, I feel like unscented is something you can offer to everybody um, to use in the yeah, outdoor but, shower. So, but, you know, people who don't like but it's also, smell or you that You can use it to wash your hair, you can use it to wash your body. It's... Well, that's what they say. It was uh, touted uh, in the Wall Street Journal this weekend under cult following. I'm part of the cult. And uh, it's, you know, they say you can, like you said, wash your hair, wash your face, your teeth, your dog, okay, your I, windows, your I don't wash my teeth laundry. or my dog. Okay. Yeah. Um, Makeup uh, artist Bobby Brown is a big fan. Yeah. She keeps it. Every, she keeps the peppermint version, well, it, it, and it comes in unscented, which is what we use. Yeah, almond, lavender, yeah. peppermint, eucalyptus, yeah. rose, Listen, tea tree, it's, it's, citrus. It's great. Just the unscented, the simple soap. It's great soap. 
It's very mild. I even use it as shaving cream, which is shaving cream is a, it puts a shine on it. It's uh, it's awful. It, it, it's like putting soap on and shaving. Okay. But uh, it's it's good for your skin. I but mean, you're part of the cult. I'm part of the cult. And the, the one word, the cult, one reason people use the word cult is there are religious messages on the side of all the containers about how if we accept Jesus, everything's going to be all right. Uh, that's a big part of it. That's where Dr. Bonner came from. But I you know, still love the soap. So, um, okay, special uh, President's Day... Um, uh, insight. Here we go. So there's an article. Uh, bah, 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 bah. Yes, about uh, a book coming out called "Author in Chief" by Craig Fairman. Not a review. It's an article. Fairman. Fairman. F e h r m a n. And he says uh, he wrote an article. Uh, wrote a book uh, that's about to be released, and it's about presidents as authors. And you know, I hadn't thought much about it. And it turns out that presidents have written a lot of books. Now there are there are those books which art will, of the deal. Yeah. Order of the deal. There were, well, Trump has 25 books, which is with names like How to Be a Billionaire and Kick Ass, which is literally one of the titles. Um, but putting Trump aside, I mean, a lot of the books are um, books that people write to aid in their campaigns. It lays out what they want to do. But, and those interest me less. But there are a lot of books also. Presidents are thoughtful people. They're well-spoken. They read and write. Uh, they got time in their hands when they're most not in office. Them. Yeah, most, most of them. them. Well, here's the big surprise. I'm going to give you the very top ones. Uh, and it's not necessarily who you think. I mean, we're all familiar with uh, Barack Obama uh, writing uh, his book. Although I, um, well, um, Dreams from My Father, A Story of Race and Inheritance, uh, is considered, frankly, a wonderful book. And uh, has, has uh, written in an article here. And I did a little research and uh, about people who are critics talking about these various books. It's an article by an Alan Barra. And he says, there is nothing remotely like dreams from my father from the pen of any other American president. In fact, it could reasonably be called the first book ever by a president that examines the subject of race in America straight up. Uh, what uh, Fairman says is that he spoke to someone who was Obama's editor, and they had discussions about whether uh, this is before Obama was a candidate for president, uh, whether he should uh, go into politics or whether he should become a writer. And this fellow advised Obama, forget politics, become a novelist. And I guess the, he didn't take his advice, but he was such a wonderful writer. There's still time. There is still time. Uh, Abraham Lincoln, also considered, uh, obviously, a great writer and great speaker, wrote a best-selling book uh, right before he was president. But it was really just a compilation of his debates with Stephen Douglas. Uh, but apparently those debates were so well-spoken, uh, in contrast with what you hear in debates today, that it's considered... Uh, Wonderful writing. Um, so let me just give you just two or three others. Uh, some will surprise you, some won't. And when, when we were growing up, we all heard about Kennedy, Profiles and Courage, because it won the Pulitzer Prize. That's not given much credit these days because the theory is it was ghostwritten, mm -hmm. that it was written by Ted Sorensen, who was later a speechwriter. Mm -hmm. But he wrote two other books, uh, one called Why England Slept, which was a senior thesis at Harvard, and the other was A Nation of Immigrants, which were considered pretty good. So we'll give him credit. Uh, but you also have to credit, strangely, uh, with Nixon. Nixon wrote a book called The Six Crises, uh, and it was written before he became president. And uh, it's, it, this is, again, this is another critic, Stephen Maldonado. His 1979 memoir, Six Crises, is widely considered to be a compelling, intensely personal reflection of his life and the time he spent in the White House as vice president. Uh, it's considered an excellent book. Uh, notwithstanding whatever you feel about Nixon. 
Jimmy Carter, I'm sure you realize, well, maybe you don't, but he seems to be releasing a book every few years. He's written a whole bunch of books, um, and some of them well received. Uh, there's An Hour Before Daylight, which is growing up in the Depression on a farm in Georgia. There's Faith, A Journey for Us All, which is what you'd expect. He also wrote something called Hornet's Nest, which is the first novel written by uh, a president, uh, and that's uh, set in Revolutionary War in the South. But the final two presidents I'll talk about surprised me, at least. Um, Teddy Roosevelt. Teddy Roosevelt wrote uh, 40 books. 40 books. Uh, he wrote books like uh, The Naval War of 1812, which was considered a brilliant uh, treatment of how exactly that war was conducted. It was only used as a textbook. And he wrote a book about the Rough Riders called The Rough Riders. Um, but he also wrote a book which was called, um, let's see what the title of this is, American Ideals, I believe. And um, it is, yeah, American Ideals and Other Essays, Social and Political. And again, in the words of Barrow, Barrow is quoting Stephen Ambrose, Teddy Roosevelt stands alone, unchallenged by any other 20th century president as a writer and scholar. Teddy Roosevelt. That's you don't envision him that way. No, no. Yeah, yeah. Uh, but the number one book generally attributed to a president, and a total surprise to me, is and you'd never get it because I didn't. Ulysses S. Grant. Seriously, I'm not kidding. Wrote a book called Personal Memoirs: Selected Letters. Again, this is Mara. A poll of American presidential scholars could well rank Grant's personal memoirs as the best book written by an American president. Mark Twain thought it to be the most remarkable work of its kind since Caesar's commentaries. Matthew Arnold found Grant's prose straightforward, uh, possessing the, in general the high merit of saying clearly in the fewest possible words that had to be said. Uh, he, he was sick. Uh, he was, had throat cancer. That's when he wrote it. And yet he wrote 25 to 50 pages a day in his last days and as they say here, candid, honest, and surprisingly self-effacing, Grant's personal memoirs is without parallel in American literature. Interesting. Yeah, no idea. All right, so lately we're getting a lot of uh, reading advice from you. Yes. Interesting. All right, so to wrap things up here, have uh, sort of a love story um, from the New York Times, an article entitled A Beloved Neighbor Leaves the Building by Peter Khoury. And uh, it's the story of a man, Charles Dunn, who, uh, living on the Upper West Side in a co-op, passed away uh, just uh, February 1st at the age of 99. And uh, the, he had lived in that uh, building since the 50s. And it was just kind of a charming story mm -hmm. about this man. He was a singer, and uh, he had grown up on an Illinois farm and uh, gone to college, uh, been in the Coast Guard in World War II, uh, came to New York to uh, be a singer, to uh, you know, pursue uh, his career dream uh, in order to help make ends meet. He worked at Schraff's on the Upper West Side, alongside another aspiring um, performer, Rod Steiger, mm -hmm. and I'm sure others. Uh, he never became super famous, uh, 
but he did. He was in a lot of uh, productions uh, um, with a lot of stars. Like Alfred Drake, supposedly Alfred Drake gave him a standing ovation at his uh, audition huh. for uh, one production. Uh, so he was in many Broadway productions. He was in a variety of shows. He um, traveled a great deal, even into his 90s. Because he was a performer, he ended up in uh, interesting situations. He was uh, in, um, he was at that. Um, uh, production in um, 1962 where Marilyn Monroe sang Happy Birthday oh. to John F. Kennedy yeah. uh, at uh, Madison Square, Square Garden. Garden. Yeah. He was there. Um, so uh, he um, was in uh, those industrial musicals mm-hmm. uh, by being in an auto show uh, one summer. He earned enough money to buy his own uh, co-op. In, in that building in the 1950s on the fifth floor, fifth floor walk up, which his doctor said probably uh, contributed to his longevity. Right. Uh, so uh, at a certain point, he, he did help care for uh, a neighbor on the top floor who left him his apartment and he used that apartment as sort of a pension, you know, would rent that out and uh, helped him, helped uh, finance his later years. It wasn't until about 12 years ago, which means he was in his mm-hmm. late 80s, yeah. that he sold the higher floor apartments and moved into a second floor apartment um, for the last few years and was renting there. He was still singing. He was still going to productions, even in December, uh, uh, very frail. Um and uh, he, you know, his neighbors were fond of saying, if he gave you a cantaloupe, it was perfectly ripe because he grew up on a farm and knew what ripe was. All right. So he was he was a wonderful neighbor, a wonderful man, uh, a, um, a big man, uh, commanding. And uh, what I loved about this article was uh, this little um, sort of observation of the author. He says, one great thing about Manhattan is that the density of humanity increases the chances of encountering people who bring something special to the table. Charles brought an extra serving. Okay. So that's Charles Dunn. And we're done. That's a good note to end on. Yeah. Uh, Uh, So until next time. When we will report about Mac and Mabel. (laughs) Among Dan- other things, this is Tamsin Granger. And Dan Apuhoff. With Tamsin and Dan read the paper. Adios.